Well, let me welcome you to the very last lesson in our series on the kingdom. For the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at this incredible topic called Thy Kingdom Come, the, the kingdom of God. Uh, what's its ramifications for us right here, right now? And then what's the future going to look like? And that's where we're going to go today as we wrap up this, this series. The series title for this week is The Kingdom Come. Now, we've talked a whole lot about the kingdom, the concept behind the kingdom. We went all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning, and then we've tracked it through the Gospels. We've seen everything that Jesus had to say about the kingdom, but we live with the expectation that the kingdom is to come. And that's really how we want to wrap it up today. And we're going to be spending most of our time in two chapters of the Bible found in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Now, these are incredibly fantastic passages that have all kinds of strange and bizarre imagery. We're not going to try to unpack all of that. But what we do want to try to find out is what is this kingdom we're waiting for? How does it get here? When does it come? And what's the impact on us living right here, right now in this current age? Over in 1 Peter chapter 1, and this is the book we're going to study beginning in January. We're going to take it from the first verse to the last verse. And in it, Peter talks a lot about our inheritance, this thing that we're waiting for, this coming kingdom. Listen to what he says. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay, and through your faith, God is protecting you by His power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So here you have Peter talking about our inheritance. He refers to it as this salvation that is yet to be revealed. Uh, and he's really talking about the coming kingdom, uh, how everything wraps up. This incredible redemptive plan of God has a beginning and it also has an end. There's this promise that Peter talks about of an inheritance. But Paul also talked about this. Over in the book of Ephesians, he starts out by saying, Because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. Now Paul seems to say we already have this inheritance. And he's right, because this inheritance is ours already. Now, we don't live in the kingdom right now. The kingdom has not yet fully come. But it is as good as ours is essentially what Paul is trying to let us know. We have already received it by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ came and He gave His life on our behalf. We've received it. It is already rightfully ours. We can count on it. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to... We can't lose it. That's probably the best thing we, we can really think about is the fact there's nothing I can do to lose my inheritance. It's already mine. It's already yours if you're in Christ in reality. It's just out there waiting for its final culmination, which is really what we're talking about today. Paul told the Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In other words, focus your attention on what would please God knowing that from the Lord, from Him, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. One of the things we're going to talk about a lot in this lesson is that we, we need to live with the end in mind. We need to focus on what God has focused on, the coming of the kingdom. And 
it's too easy for us to get so focused on this world that we, we end up living like this is the kingdom. And we've talked about that quite a bit during this whole series. But what Paul is telling you and I is that we've got to remember that we already have an inheritance. It's ours and it's far greater in value than anything we'll ever have in this earth. And, and that we have to understand that it comes later. We've received it by right, but we don't receive it in reality until God brings all things to a close. Our, our inheritance is guaranteed, though. That should bring comfort to every one of us that, that we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to fret over it. Nobody's going to fight us for it. The, the, uh, some judge is not going to rule in someone else's favor. It is ours by right. It's ours by reality. It, it is ours permanently for eternity. So it's guaranteed. The, the author of Hebrews expands on this idea when he says, For the, the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered Himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why He is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance, eternal inheritance God has promised them. All. All who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. All of us who have accepted Him as our Savior can rest in the fact that we will receive this eternal inheritance. It's, it's held by God on behalf of us. Again, we can't lose it. We can't screw it up. We, we can't somehow um, make God take it away from us because God is the one who holds it securely in His hand and we will one day receive it just as He has promised. But we have to ask the question, what is this inheritance? What is Paul talking about? What is Peter talking about? When they both refer to this inheritance that is rightfully ours, what is it? Well, over in Matthew chapter 25, we, we looked at this last week. Jesus gives this parable, this story about the coming kingdom. He's actually prophesying about the end times. And he says, Then the king will say to those in his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the creation of the world. In this parable that Jesus tells, right before His death and right before His burial and resurrection and ultimate ascension back up into heaven, He tells His disciples this parable about the end times, particularly the end of the period of the tribulation. And He talks about this inheritance of a kingdom. That's what it is. It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom we've been talking about for the last 11 weeks. The kingdom of God. That is what we are waiting for. That is what we should be hoping for. But this kingdom has three really important features we need to look at. First of all, it's imperishable. And, and that just simply means that it, it has no end. It's also undefiled. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. And it's unfading. So three things about this kingdom. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What's that mean? What's so great about those three things and as it relates to us as human beings? Well, first of all, it's free from corruption and decay. We are surrounded by corruption and decay. Let's face it, even our bodies are corrupting and decaying. Every day we're older. Every day certain muscles ache more than others. We, we, our sight diminishes. We see it happening all around us. It's happening in creation. Everything is, is slowly winding down and decaying. And yet, that's not what the kingdom's going to be like. 
it's undefiled. That just simply means it has no flaws, completely devoid of flaws or any imperfections of any kind. You know, we live in a beautiful world. There are beautiful things that we can look at. We can go to the beach. We can go to the Grand Canyon. We can see the wonders of the world, but there's always something marring it. And it's because, again, it's under a curse, just like our bodies are under a curse. But that's not true of the coming kingdom. And finally, it's unfading. It's, it will not be affected by time. It's not going to change in time. You can build a beautiful city, and over time that city will begin to decay. That, that city will need com complete redoing at some point in time because everything in it, at least in our age, is always falling apart, decaying, diminishing in its beauty. But that's not true of the kingdom. So it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. See, this thing that we're waiting for is not like anything we've ever known before. That's what sets it apart. That's why it's so incredibly worth waiting for and something that we should focus on as we live in this life because we're surrounded by everything that's just the opposite of the coming kingdom. And yet we're told that it's kept in heaven. Peter says that this, this inheritance, this kingdom is being kept in heaven for you. Is he teaching that heaven is our inheritance? You know, for the longest time in my life growing up in the church, I, I always thought that heaven is our final destination. Heaven is our home. There are so many hymns that talk about that very fact. Well, is that what Peter is telling us? He uses the word kept. And in the Greek, it's an interesting word because it means reserved. It's reserved. Now, it sounds like he's saying it's reserved in heaven for you. But it, it's not really saying that that's the destination. That's its location. It's just that that's the place where the reservation is being kept. Now, follow me through this. It also means that it's being guarded and watched over where? In heaven. But heaven is not the final destination of the kingdom. It's being attended to. God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son are watching over, carefully attending this incredible thing that, that has been created for us but it's not going to be located in heaven. And that's going to be really significant as we go through this, this study today because we all bring some warped views of, of where the kingdom is and what the kingdom is. And so we need to listen carefully to what Peter and Paul and the other apostles are, say, are saying about this incredible inheritance that we have called the kingdom of God. The kingdom is being reserved and guarded for us in heaven but that's not where it will be located. And that may blow some of your minds because you've grown up in a denomination that has taught you that when you die, you will go to heaven and that's where you'll stay for eternity. But the scriptures seem to teach something really different. Its final location will not be in heaven. The kingdom, the kingdom to come that Jesus talked about, that he taught his disciples to pray for, thy kingdom come, thy will be done will not be in heaven, it will be somewhere radically different. So let's look at Revelation chapter 21. We're not going to be able to look at every verse in these two chapters. And, and as I said, they're, they're so rich in detail and in incredible imagery that we're not going to be able to unpack all of that. But I do want us to see what it tells us about this coming kingdom. It starts out and says, Then I, John, the Apostle John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So a couple of things. First of all, he talks about the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The old earth, the old heaven are going to be destroyed is how we believe this happens. And God is going to remake them, renew them, because they are damaged by, they've been cursed by the fall. And so God's going to recreate them, so to speak. And He's going to create this, or has already created this incredible city called the New Jerusalem, and it's going to come down out of heaven. Then He goes on and says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Now, don't miss this. This voice that John hears is the voice of God declaring something pretty significant, right? He's saying that God is declaring that from this point forward, now that the holy city of New Jerusalem is descending from heaven to earth, that God will dwell with man. He repeats it several times. His, his dwelling place will now be with man. Where is his dwelling place right now? In the heavens. But now he's going to come and dwell with us in an environment made like earth. So, so God is, in the same sense that Jesus Christ took on human flesh and came and dwelt among us, God himself is going to come to earth and dwell among us with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. There's this unity with God which should remind us of what happened in creation when God walked with man, when He talked with them, fellowshiped with Him. That's what this is going to be like. God Himself will come and dwell with us. Now, I've put this in your notes. This is a diagram, a very <laughs> complicated diagram that shows the end times. We're not going to unpack it today, but I just wanted to give that to you. It illustrates what we as Christ Chapel believe about the end times. You may not agree with this chart, and that's perfectly fine. Here's my only challenge. Whatever it is you think about the end times, whatever um, timeline you associate with the end times, I want you to believe it based on Scripture not based on something you were taught in Sunday school or from whatever denomination. Go study the Word of God. And we as Christ Chapel believe this paints a picture of the end times. And so I want to concentrate though on the very end of the end times. There's going to be a thousand year reign where Jesus Christ comes back to earth and He reigns in the city of Jerusalem on earth on the throne of David. And then at the end of that period of time, Satan, who's been bound during that thousand years, is going to be loosed and he's going to lead a rebellion, a final rebellion, to try to dethrone Christ. And he's going to be defeated and he's going to be sent to hell. And then everyone who followed him will face the same destination. And this will bring about the end and usher in the eternal state. And that's when the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem come about. See, Jesus will reign for a thousand years on the earthly plain of Jerusalem, the, the, the ancient city of Jerusalem. But at the end of that period of time, there will be a remaking of the heavens and the earth. And there will be this new city of Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. 
And so this ushers in the eternal state. Now, what's really significant about all of this is, is you have to keep in mind that the, the Bible is a story that has a beginning and an end. Yes, God is eternal, and there is an eternal state. There is no end to the story, so to speak. But in, in terms of the Bible, there's a beginning, Genesis, and there's an end, the book of Revelation. And if you compare these two books, it's pretty fascinating what you see. You see in Genesis that the heaven and the earth are created, but in Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth created. In Genesis, you see the sun created. In Revelation, we're told that there's going to be no need for a sun or a moon in the new world, so to speak. In Genesis, you have night established. We're told in the book of Revelation, there is no night. There's no darkness anymore because we will literally live in the light of God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. We saw the seas created in the book of Genesis. We're told now there will be no more seas. We're not really sure what that means, where there'll be no, no more oceans. We're really not sure, but it's interesting to think that in the Jewish concept, the seas were a place of darkness, a place of evil. They were always associated with Leviathan, the beast. They, so there's, there's a negative aspect to the seas. And we're told that in the book of Revelation, the seas will be no more. In the book of Genesis, the curse was announced. In Revelation, there is no more curse. We know that in Genesis that death enters history by virtue of the fall of Adam and Eve. And we know that in Revelation, there will be no more death, no threat of death, no fear of death. In Genesis, man was driven from paradise. They were thrown out of the garden. And yet here we see man restored in the book of Revelation, to a new paradise, really a new garden, as we'll see in just a minute. In Genesis, sorrow and pain begins because of the fall. And then we know that, that great promise about the kingdom to come, that there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. It's going to be a radically different environment. So we've gone from one to another. And then finally, the devil appears on the scene in the book of Genesis and, and leads Eve to do what she did. And yet we know in the book of Revelation, when everything comes to an end, that he is defeated and he is sent permanently to his place of eternal punishment. So you see this bookend, the bookend of redemption. And so that's what makes this coming of the kingdom so significant for you and I. So in Revelation chapter 21, it tells us that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is what we just read. John is getting this vision from God about the end. The sea was no more. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, coming down out of heaven. See, it's been prepared for you and I. It's been under construction for centuries after centuries, and now it is actually coming to earth so that you and I, as the children of God, can enjoy everything that it offers. This, this incredible thing of this dwelling place that God is going to dwell with man. He will live with us. He will walk amongst us. I, I have no idea what that looks like because from this point all the way back to Genesis, Man has not been able to see God, to fellowship with God in this kind of relationship, but somehow it's going to happen. See, everything's going to be changed, that God Himself will live with us as our God. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. 
You see his emphasis on the fact that a lot of the stuff that we've grown used to that marks the world in which we live, the sorrow, the pain, the death, all of that's going to go away. It will be no more because God's going to completely eliminate these things. He will eliminate any need for tears. There will be no more need to cry. We won't have any sorrow in our life. There'll be no threat of death anymore, no fear of death, no worry about death. You'll never lose a loved one again. You'll never have to go to another funeral in your lifetime. There's going to be no cause for sorrow. In other words, nothing to cause you sorrow and pain. That, that's, that's a mind blower. It, it's impossible for us to understand living in a, an environment where there's no, no sorrow and nothing to cause sorrow. And there's going to be no reason to cry out in distress. You and I both have experienced those times where you cry out to God and you just can't take it anymore. And why is this happening to me? And when are you going to do something about this? Guess what? In the new kingdom, there will be no need to cry out ever again and no pain. I can't imagine what that's like to live without pain. I have chronic back pain and I can't imagine not having it anymore. I look forward to it. But, but this is what we look forward to. This is the hope, the promise that we've been given. He says the former things, everything we've grown used to, all those things we hate about living in this life are going to be gone. They're done away with. The former things have passed away. You see, everything associated with the fall will be eliminated. Everything that came into our lives because of the sin of Adam and Eve will be done away with. We won't have to worry about it anymore. All the innocence, the beauty, the purity, and the peace that was part of Eden pre-fall gets restored in spades. It's going to be an incredible place. And it's so hard for us to get our heads around this because we've never lived in a place like this. We've had moments. We've all had those moments where everything is peaceful and everything seems to be going well, but then reality sets back in. You may have gone on a, vaca a vacation where you felt like, man, this is like heaven on earth. And then you have to come back into the real world. You got to go back to work. You got to pay the bills. You got to do all the things that are part of living in this fallen world. Well, we're not going to have that problem in heaven. God's final judgment on his cursed creation will be taken care of permanently reversed. Permanently reversed. See, that's something that we should all look forward to because we know we live in a broken world. I've said this several times over the last few weeks that every, everyone on this planet, whether they're in Christ or outside of Christ, all believe we live in a fallen world because they're all trying to fix what's broken, but by their own means and without the help of God. We all know it's broken and we're all longing to, to see the cursed creation fixed. And that's really what Peter and Paul are promising you and I and what God promised John in his vision, that I'm going to do it. I am going to restore, restore this cursed creation. I'm going to bring things back to the way they need to be. Listen to this, this from the author of the book of Hebrews. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. In other words, when he appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and spoke, the people down below could literally see the mountain shake and hear the roar and the rumble of God's voice. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only the unshakable things will remain. 
See, God's going to take all the things that are broken, all the things that are shakable, and He's only going to leave the unshakable, the eternal, those things that can last for eternity. And it's this whole idea of He's going to take what was broken and He's going to renew it and remake it, the earth, the heavens. All of it's going to be repaired by God and put back into its original glory. He goes on and says, Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe now. That's, that's really what he's saying. Since we've got this inheritance that is unshakable. In other words, everything about the kingdom to come is unshakable. And so we should therefore be thankful and please God right here, right now, and live in awe and fear of Him because of the glory that He's going to allow us to live in in the future. Totally undeserved. All by His grace. But it should cause us to rejoice and praise Him. And it goes on, for God is, our, is a devouring fire. See, there's that picture of we're going to be blessed, but there's also a judgment. See, part of the reason He's going to remake everything is because he's going to judge what is broken, what has been marred by sin. But we don't have to worry about that. We will not be susceptible to his devouring fire because we have this inheritance already reserved for us. I love looking at the original language because it helps us understand what these writers were trying to convey. And the word unshakable literally means it's not liable to overthrow and disorder anymore. You know, it's amazing to look at our world and see that it's totally susceptible to overthrow at all times. My wife does work in Ethiopia, particularly Addis Ababa, the capital. And the entire nation of Ethiopia right now is going through a potential civil war where one group is trying to take over the government and create a rebellion. See, overthrow is always a part of this world in which we live. But the kingdom to come will be firm and stable and unshakable. Nobody will ever be able to change it. Why? Because God has made it, and He's made it perfectly and permanently. That's what we have to look forward to. Totally unshakable. Back in the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, it says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This is an Old Testament prophecy talking about the coming of the kingdom. It's talking about the end times when God will literally shake the nations. He will defeat the nations that rise up in rebellion against His Son, and He will defeat them, and then He will bring about His final kingdom. And, and the people will all bring glory to God because He will alone rule and reign. See, that's what you and I have to look forward to. But we sometimes forget about it. We don't think about it. We may not even believe it to be true, and we end up thinking only about the world in which we live. But the book of Revelation goes on and says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He's in the process of bringing this about. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Everything I'm telling you, John, everything I'm telling you about the end times is true. Write it down. Save it for posterity. Make sure that everyone reads it. 
so that they understand how this story ends. See, we've got to understand that God is in the process of making all things new, and we're living in that process. We're being made, made new at all times. Those of us who are in Christ are being renewed every day in our minds and the way we live because He is always sanctifying us. See, it's a process that is ongoing, but it's a process that will have an end. He is making all things new, but there is an end to that process. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. See, God's been doing a new thing from the beginning. Ever since the fall, He's been bringing about this new thing that's going to come about in the end. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Can't you not see it? Don't you understand it? Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Here, here is God in the Old Testament prophesying about the end times, the new heavens, the new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. You, know, you may think, you know, man, when, I, when all this happens and we're living in the new kingdom, am, am I going to miss my old life? Am I going to miss my job, my, my house? You know, you're not going to miss anything. The old things will be gone. You won't care about any of that anymore because of all that has happened. This new incredible thing that God is bringing about. See, here's what's exciting is that we're told in 2 Corinthians by Paul that we are new creations, you and I. When we place our faith in Christ that we are automatically made a new creation. We still have a fallen sin nature, right? We still battle with sin. But we are part of this reviving that is taking place that God is going to culminate with the coming kingdom. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, we live that imperfectly right now because we do have that old sin nature that plagues us. We do have this body that is decaying and falling apart, but it's a picture of and a kind of a preview of greater things to come. He's in the process of making all things new. God is going to ultimately redeem and renew everything. The heavens, the earth, and these human bodies. We're going to get new bodies, glorified bodies. Don't know what they're going to look like. Don't know what age they'll be. All I know is they will be free from pain and they will never, they will never have to suffer death. See, God is going to bring this to closure. As His glorified kingdom citizens, we, we will have a glorified kingdom in which to live in. It's not going to be shakable. See, the problem with Jesus reigning in an earthly Jerusalem for a thousand years, that city would decay. That city was not yet a glorified city. That was the old Jerusalem. And it, had, it will have people living in it who are both saved and lost. And we see that at the end of the thousand years of His righteous reign, Satan is loosed and millions upon millions of lost people will side with Him over a righteous King, the King Jesus. So that's why there has to be a new kingdom. There has to be a new Jerusalem that God brings down out of the heavens. See, this is what's going to happen. And in verse 6, it says, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the, and the end. It's done. It is as good as done. See, even when John got this vision, living on the island of Patmos, it, it was centuries before 
we, we're reading it and it still hasn't happened. It didn't happen in his lifetime, hasn't happened in ours yet, but it is going to happen. He says, it is done. It is as good as done. He says, I am the beginning and the end. That word beginning means that which, by which anything begins to be. See, it, Jesus, God, the Godhead created everything. They started the whole process in the book of Genesis. They are the active cause of all that we see around us, including ourselves. They're the beginning, but they're also the end. They're that to which all things relate. They're the aim. They're the purpose. So they caused everything to be, and they're the reason everything came to be. It all points back to God. It all points back to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They, they started it all, and they are the purpose or the aim of it all. Jesus Christ is the first cause, but He's also the final focus. That's what we have to understand is that even now while we live on this planet, He should be the final focus of all of our thoughts. He should be the thing that we think about more often than anything else. He should be our hope. He should be our greatest joy. He should be our greatest comfort. And really what's going to happen when the final kingdom comes, all the focus goes back on those for whom it belongs. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're told in John chapter 1 that He, Jesus, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. He was a part of creation. He's the first cause. We exist because of Him. The sun, the moon, the stars exist because of Him. The universe exists because of Him. And we know this from Colossians. Through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Through who? Through Jesus. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him, and don't miss this, and for Him. And so what we're going to see at the end is the, really the creation of the new creation and that new kingdom that is going to come to earth, and it's all for Him. He's the focus. So, we have this incredible picture of this great kingdom to come. And, and we, we read in Revelation, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. There's this promise given to us as his children that we have this incredible inheritance awaiting us. And, and he refers to the spring of the water of life. I think it's fascinating once again that there's this tie between Genesis and Revelation. In chapter 22 of Re Revelation, it, it gives us another kind of glimpse backward back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This, this new city that comes down of, out of heaven is going to have this river running through it, and it comes straight from the throne of God and Jesus Christ the Lamb. This, this incredible picture of sustenance, of, of the meeting of all of our needs. The tree of life will also be there. That ought to remind you of Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's not going to be one tree of life. There's going to be a multitude of trees of life. See, Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, God is bringing closure to what He began thousands and thousands of years ago. Genesis 2.9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, including the tree of life, right in the midst of the garden, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was the tree of which Eve ate the fruit that caused all the problems we've lived with for all these centuries. We're also told in verse 10, A river flowed out of Eden. See, there's the tree, there's the river, and they're going to exist again in the end, in the coming kingdom, flowing straight from the throne of God. Everything about this kingdom we're going to live in exudes and extends life. It, it produces life. No more death. It's all about sustenance. It's all about nourishment. And it all comes from the throne of God because He is the source of everything. Every good gift comes down from our Father in heaven. But now we're going to be living with Him and He will be living with us and the curse of death is completely eliminated. There's no option for death anymore. Nobody will have to fear it. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is nowhere mentioned in the book of Revelation. There will be no more capacity to revolt against God. Don't understand that. Can't explain it and what it has to do with free will. But guess what, guys? We're not going to want to sin anymore. That will be gone. And you can say, well, maybe that's the death of man's free will. But all I know is that we're going to be living in perfection in a place that is perfect and holy and righteous and good in every way. And we'll have full knowledge and understanding of everything. That I can't imagine at all. I feel like I read a lot and yet there's so much I feel like I don't know. But in heaven, I will have full knowledge of everything. Listen to what Paul says. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflection in a mirror. But then, in the new kingdom, in the kingdom to come, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. You may have said something like this. I, I say it quite frequently. I can't wait till I get to heaven and talk to Paul and ask him all these theological questions. I can't wait to talk to Peter and find out what it was like to deny Jesus and what that felt like. You know what? We're already going to know. We're not going to be spending our time trying to get information that we think is so vital because we'll know. We'll have perfect knowledge when we get there. And we'll spend most of our time praising and glorifying God for His goodness and His grace. So this is amazing that we will have perfect knowledge of everything. There's, there's going to be no gaps in our knowledge. There will be nothing that we don't know. There will be no need for trivia games anymore, right? Because everyone will win. Uh, we'll know the answer to every question that can be posed. Why? Because we will be perfect and righteous and holy. So in verse 7 it says, The one who conquers will have this heritage. Those of us who remain faithful to the end will get this inheritance. It is guaranteed. And God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake 
that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He's saying that not everyone is going to get to live in this kingdom, which is what should drive our evangelistic zeal right here, right now. Because we live among people who will not enjoy this incredible place because they have rejected Jesus Christ. And now is the time to tell them. Now is the time to share because they will not be inheritors of this incredible thing called the kingdom of God. See, we have this, this inheritance, this heritage, this great gift reserved for us by God. Listen to what Paul says in the Corinthians. We looked at this last week. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's why we need to share the gospel. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were blessed. You were graced by God's goodness. Share it with others. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So that's why while we live in this age, our mission is to reconcile, according to Paul, lost and dying people to a holy God so that they too will be able to enjoy the same inheritance we do. So once again, we've got this incredible gift reserved for us where we will get to enjoy eternity in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and once again, the Lord says to John in this incredible vision, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And we could go on and read the rest of this chapter and we'd get this incredible image of this beautiful place. It, it gives us its, its dimensions. It tells us it's... It's a square cube. Can't understand it. Can't explain it. Doesn't know how it works. Don't know how it works. But all I know is this imagery is meant to tell us that this is an incredible place and it will have the glory of God all over it. And guess what? You get to live there. I get to live there. We get to enjoy that. And by extension of that, we get to enjoy the glory of God 24-7, 365 there won't be any time, but for eternity, that's what we get to enjoy. See, it's a perfect city. Everything in that passage, everything that's so wildly imaginative and the way John tries to explain it is meant to des describe a perfect city without flaw. It's well-designed. It's beautifully constructed. It's got gold streets. It's got gates made out of pearls. I don't know if that's literal, figurative. It really doesn't matter. It just means that because it's been built by God, it is perfect in every way and it has enough room for everyone. It, it, there, there's, there's room at the table for all. Let's just, that's why we need to share. There's going to be a, plenty of room in this city and it, it will also be a perfect temple. That's how it's described in chapter 21. It will be the residence of God. That's why it says God will come and dwell among us. He will tabernacle among us. The city will be His temple. The whole city becomes a temple. We're told there is no temple in the new kingdom because the city is the temple because God will live and dwell with us and all the nations will worship God. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But here's, here's another aspect of it you may not have ever thought about. It's going to be a perfect garden. It's going to have that river. It's going to have those trees bearing 12 different kinds of fruit for every season. It, it's an incredible, beautiful place that would put the hanging gardens of Babylon to shame. See, it's a garden. It'll have a life-giving river. It will have those incredible trees that bring life and sustenance and healing to the nations. It will be a place of both spiritual and physical nourishment. It's a perfect city. It's a perfect temple. It's a perfect garden. That's the place where we're going to live. And so, once again, as we wrap this up, and as God wraps up the story in the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed are those. Blessed are we because this is going to be our future. This is our inheritance. We will enter the city. Psalm 118, 19 and 20 says, Open me the gates of righteousness that I may enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. One day you and I will enter into that city enter into that city, and we will enjoy everything that it has to offer. Revelation 2, 3, and 7, Without growing weary, you have persevered. This is speaking to you and I. This is a message to you and I living in this day and age under everything that surrounds us, the fallen world in which we live. You have persevered and endured many things for my, the sake of my name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's our hope. That's our future. I love how the Amplified Bible translates 1 Peter 1, 3-5. We read it at the beginning, and I want to read it again. Listen carefully to what Peter tells the readers of his letter. Blessed. Gratefully praised and adored be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant and boundless mercy has caused us to be born again, that is, to be reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and set apart for His purpose. Then he goes on, to an ever-living hope and confident assurance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, born anew into an inheritance which is imperishable, beyond the reach of change, and undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. And then he wraps it up. Who are being protected and shielded by the power of God through your faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed for you in the last time. We'll study this in greater detail in January, but here's what Peter's telling you and I. We have every reason to rejoice. We have every reason to hope. We have every reason to understand that God is keeping us and protecting us for something far greater to come. And we can hope in it and we, we can look forward to it because the kingdom is coming. It will happen. It's guaranteed. That's the God we worship. He is faithful. Everything He says He will do, He will accomplish His will. And our place in that kingdom is already reserved and nobody can do anything about it. It can't be robbed from us. It can't be taken from us. We can't lose it. We can't screw it up. It's reserved. But we have to live with that end in mind. 
See, this is where it gets really interesting for all of us is that we have to somehow learn how to live with our eyes focused on what's to come without losing sight that we still have a job to do while we live here. But see, the end ought to motivate how we live right here and now. It should drive our behavior. We can't lose sight of the objective. And what's the objective? Listen to what Peter says. Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children right here, right now. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Live with the end in mind. So here's your questions for today. How could living with the end in mind make a difference in the way we live our lives in this age? Be practical. Make it applicable. How do we live knowing that that's the future God has in store? How should it impact the way I live right here, right now? Secondly, how does all this change, all this change your view of this line from the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it goes on to say. How has everything we've looked at today changed the way that prayer comes out of your lips? What does it mean? How does it change your perspective? Then finally, of all the descriptions of the coming kingdom found in Revelation 21 and 22, which do you look forward to the most and why? You're going to have to go back and look at it, but is it the streets of gold? Probably not. Is it the lack of pain and sorrow? Probably. Is it no more death? Go back and figure out what of those things really are the most important to you, the, the most attractive to you, and think on those things because that's what will motivate you in the here and now. Well, Father, thank you for this uh, series. Thank you for uh, the men who have been a part of it, watching online, coming to the, the, the different lessons that are taught live. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to work in my life and in their lives the reality of what it means to live with the end in mind that the kingdom is coming and we can count on it and we look forward to it. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys in January.